Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning and Music at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and Theologian in Residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock, Arkansas. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we read Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, through chapter 2, verse 10, and also chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. It's a lot of text, and it asks a lot of big questions. And we circled back again and again to this one. What is capturing your attention? We see in this story just how little it takes for the situation to turn bad for the Israelites in Egypt, and in this newly roaring sea of people and power that are bent against them. We read stories of individuals who manage somehow to incline their attention somewhere else. We manage to look at the one human being right in front of them and respond in that moment with care. Is it enough to save one life when it seems the world is on fire? We can't be the judge of that, but we sure do get the sense that what they did was urgently important. Thanks for being with us. Hey, Bobby. How are you? Hey, Amy. I'm doing really great. How are you? I'm doing fine. I'm doing just fine. You sound surprised. <laughs> you sound surprised. Well, like, oh, yeah. Look, I oh, mean, fine. like, I, I'm in this, I'm in this season of my life. I probably say this every week, where there's just, it. There, there are so many things to do that if I think about all the things to do, oh, yeah. I'm decidedly not fine. But. All of the individual things are really good. Like, I like yeah. doing all of these things. So I'm really trying to just do the thing as it's happening and then do the next thing. And until I am catastrophically unprepared for something, which will probably happen <laughs> eventually, I'm just trying to roll with that. Yeah. Do you know that Anne Lamott book, Bird by Bird? It's really I about, know of it, but I haven't read it. It's really about writing, but that's sort of the thing. As her brother, I think it was, was when he was a kid, he was trying to write an essay about birds, and he's like, I don't know how to write an essay about birds. And then I get, I think it was maybe their father or something. It was like, you just write bird by bird. Like, just write about the next bird, and then it's not so mm-hmm. overwhelming. Yeah. And that yeah. reminds yeah. me of what you have just said. Of what I just said. Okay, so sort of along that vein— Last night, I was going to sleep, and my husband came in to chit-chat, and he said, what's in your day tomorrow? And I was like, well, in the morning, I have Bible worm. And then I didn't really know what was, you know, I don't know what's on my calendar the next day. I'll just do whatever's on my calendar. Yeah. And so I, so I said, and then after that, I don't know, regular work. But he thought I said regular worm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, first, I'll do Bible worm, and then just regular worm. Regular worm, yeah. That would be... Yeah. That would be such a fascinating podcast. Like, just talk about regular worm. What is stuff. regular worm? I know. Yeah. What, yeah, just a regular worm. He laughed for like 10 minutes. <laughs> regular worm. <laughs> it's great. I love it. Yeah. All right, but today we've got a text we need to read, and it is a doozy. We, we, it's a lot of text today, yes. So the official narrative lectionary reading is Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 14, and then chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. 
And then there is an optional text in the middle there. And you know we always do the optional text. I can never avoid an optional text. And cannot pass up an optional text. Me. <laughs> Read me. That takes us through the rest of chapter one and the first 10 verses of chapter two. So we're going to cover a lot of ground. Yeah. We've got to move at a good clip today. Yes. Yeah. That's not our strong suit. <laughs> I have a I have a little timer next to me. It's going to give me like an electric shock after 15 minutes. Every 15 minutes. I'm going to try to just do one word responses today. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it'll be great. That'll it'll be, be great. the most informative podcast that we have ever done. Very compelling. Yes. Okay, so if we're going to pick up in Exodus chapter 1 verse 8, which well, we'll read it in a minute, but it sort of starts with the idea that there is a, a leadership rising up in Egypt who didn't know Joseph. Yes. Okay. Last time we were together, there was no Joseph. <laughs> Some <laughs> yeah. things have happened. Yeah. What do we need to know plot-wise to orient us to even move into this story? Famine. Sad. Egypt. <laughs> I was like, what is, what is happening? Okay. <laughs> One word doesn't, turns out doesn't really work. Um, so, you know, Jacob, who we were talking about last time, had 12 sons, one of whom his name was Joseph. Turned out Joseph was a little bit of a jerk face to his brothers. And so they <laughs> threw him in a hole and he ended up in slavery in Egypt. From there, he rose up to become the sort of right-hand man to the pharaoh and in charge of the grain storage. And so during a famine, which Joseph saw coming because he had a dream from God, his brothers came down to Egypt, not knowing that he was uh, had risen to such a position of power to seek refuge from the famine. And so Joseph managed to save his father and his 11 brothers and they were happy there in Egypt for a time. They survived the famine, and they seemed to have lived there for a while. Then in this text, what is about to happen is that a, a new pharaoh is going to come to power who doesn't know that story or doesn't care about it or something. And so the fortunes of the people of Israel, the sons of Jacob, are about to turn. How's mm -hmm. that? That's pretty good. So shall we see what happens? Let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. Okay. So I am picking up in chapter one, verse eight, and I'm reading from the NJPS. A new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the Israelite people are much too numerous for us. Let us deal shrewdly with them so that they may not increase Otherwise, in the event of war, they may join our enemies in fighting against us and rise from the ground. So they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built garrison cities for Pharaoh, Pithom, and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they increased and spread out, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians ruthlessly imposed upon the Israelites the various labors that they made them perform— Ruthlessly, they made life bitter for them with harsh labor at mortar and bricks and with all sorts of tasks in the field. This first, this starting uh, sentence, the king arose who did not know Joseph. Yeah. It just, like, it makes the hairs on my arms stand up. Of course, because I know where this is going. Yeah. But 
this is where it all falls apart. Like it turns out that this, the good, the peace, the living together <laughs> as yeah. neighbors was built on a, I don't, like a per, a, I don't know if I want to say it was built on a deck of cards. It was built on a personal relationship. Yeah. Did they do something wrong, Bobby? Like, is this just the way things happen? Like, how how do things, they lived there for so long, so well. How do yeah. things shift so fast when there's one new guy? I mean, a yeah. powerful guy. Right. No, I mean, that's a really good insight, Amy. And, you know, we tend to think of, or at least I have in my life thought of, institutions and nations as these sort of stable entities that, yeah. you know, are consistent over time. And when new rulers come, they sort of respect the traditions that have come before them. And so there is like a constancy about things. Turns out that's not actually the way the world works. That, that's a choice that rulers make mm -hmm. uh, to continue the patterns of their predecessors. And so, I mean, especially when you have a pharaoh who is just the final stop in terms of making decisions, if you get somebody like apparently this guy is who doesn't respect the past traditions, who seems motivated by fear and anxiety, who recognizes the other as somebody who is scary, then everything can turn on a dime. And, you know, I, I think a lot of us have experienced that more in the recent history in our own contexts in which mm -hmm. the sort of political stability has been upended by personalities that are a little bit unpredictable. And so to me, this both rings as a little frightening and also like a little true. This doesn't seem as yeah. distant to me as it, as it once did. No, I mean, I think that's right. I think that's right on the big scale, you know, of, of governments and world systems and also sometimes on the small scale yeah. of leadership within our congregations or our oh, yeah. communities, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, it is, it is a wonderful and important thing not to have one person or group ruling for all time right. in all of those contexts. And also change is destabilizing. So I guess the question is how do we – how do we allow for it and also mitigate, you know, when in, in the case where you have a situation like this, where there's someone coming to power who is going to take things a hard turn in the opposite direction. Yeah. And yeah. So yeah, I think you were saying earlier that, you know, I think you asked me, did they do something? Like, did the Israelites do something? And I mean, all in the world they did was they reproduced, right? <laughs> they like, right. they lived their lives. And so no, could they have avoided this? It seems, it seems not. They're just being themselves the way that they have been themselves in the same land for mm -hmm. a long time. Mm -hmm. and, every, and everything changes, even though they didn't change. And that's, that is frightening, especially like they're, because they're marked as an other. And so the king, you know, he first starts out by saying that people, those, those people who are not us are larger and stronger and they, and they keep multiplying and so there's an anxiousness about the us and the them. And as soon yeah. as those lines get drawn, then things things become a little unpredictable. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. And um, and this is maybe a step away from the text, but something you made, something you said just made me think of it. You know, we in the in the Jewish community, we talk a lot about interfaith efforts and efforts in our community because they are the right thing to do, because they are, you know, part yeah. of our sort of sense of our charge in the world. 
and also because it is really important that our neighbors know us. Yes. Because it is easy to be othered and yeah. for people to suddenly decide you're a danger and a burden and a whatever, even if nothing has changed. And yes. so it it feels important to have relationships that are that are thick in the with our neighbors and not just yes. with whatever the current leader is, because the current leader could go and at the end of the day it's your neighbor who's gonna hide you or not hide you. Mm. I think that's part of what's so painful for me in reading this is that, yes, there's a new leader. Okay, fine. But is that really all it, that's all it takes? You know? Yeah. In this story, anyway. Okay, so you already sort of named, I was going to ask you, like, what exactly are they afraid of? Because the, the text is pretty clear in saying, like, why, why are they giving them this harsh work to do. It's not so that it's not because they believe they're an inferior race and it's not for capitalist purposes, or at least that's not how it's articulated. There's a really specific concern they have and it's about their numbers. Yeah. It's so interesting because the first way, at least in the common English Bible, the first way it gets framed is they're going to keep getting bigger. Mm -hmm. If war breaks out, they're going to join our enemies and then Mm -hmm. escape. So it's not interesting. Mm-hmm. Your translation was different, I think. Rise up. Yeah, from the mine lands is or rise from the ground. Yeah. So those two sound different. Like the one, the mm-hmm. way that your translation is reading sounds a little more to me like anxiety about they they might rise up and overthrow us. Yeah. The way the CEB has it is they're going to rise up and and flee from us, which mm-hmm. you would think would actually be. Fine. Would be fine. Right. If the problem is they don't want of. them there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it turns out, I think, that they do want them there. They just don't want them there in a way that is threatening to them. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's this sort of push pull about we've got a nice labor force here mm-hmm. and we want them to be here to do the things that need to be done. So mm-hmm. we don't want them, we don't want them to escape. But also right. we're afraid that if they gain power. Right. Then it sort of takes a, like it keeps shifting. So they put them to work. And then you start getting this language of the more they grew and spread in verse 13, the Egyptians started to look at them with disgust and dread. Yeah. Now you yeah. start to get that language of, oh, those people who, it's not just that they're different from us, but they're, they're now they're disgusting. It's That's like, right. it's like it elevates and they, the Israelites are becoming less and less human. That's right. As this text, as this text progresses. Right. And it, and it, I mean, I think, again, there's real truth to it in the human experience that whatever the reasons are for setting up this oppressive system in the first place, in order to perpetuate this kind of suffering for another population, that is that is exactly what humans do. They start to dehumanize. They start yes. to—you yeah. have to see the people as not being like you, or you, yes. cannot, you cannot do this to them. Yes. Yeah, and it's—, it's it's uh, alarming and, again, also true to just sort of read the progression of that set out so plainly yeah. in this text that's so old and yeah. so removed from, from, you know, modern life in some ways. But, yeah, we're just, we're just watching it all unfold here. Mm-hmm. The other thing to me that's insightful in this text is the role of labor as, a, as social control. So Pharaoh's solution, at least his first solution, is we're afraid of them, so let's make them work harder, Mm -hmm. right? 
And so it's there's this sense in which if you can just make people work hard enough, then I don't know if this is population control, like they won't have time or energy to reproduce mm-hmm. or if it's they won't have time to like think about aligning with our enemies or rising up against us. Mm-hmm. But there's this sense in which work is the solution. Let's make people work harder and harder and harder because in some way work yields obedience. And I mm. I think that's so insightful. And I think that I think that's really actually true, as we're saying. Like the the, the layer between this text and modern life is so thin yeah, at some point. It's so thin. But I making love that. people work keeps them from recognizing or realizing that right. they are dissatisfied with the way things right. are. Right. The more they work, the more you control their time and their energy and their headspace and yes. their spirit. And yes. Yeah. There's one other thing that I wanted to point out from this section that circles back to an idea that we sort of started with, with the question of like, is it really just about who is the leader? Like, what about the neighbors? What about mm. the, the sort of, you know, yeah. the, the, the thicker relationships that yeah. they may or may not have had? And the text doesn't really speak to that, but it does in verses 9 and 10, I just watch as it goes from the king who says, look, the Israelite people are too numerous for us. And then by the time they get to verse 11, it says they set taskmasters over them. So the the king has very quickly persuaded. It's not just that the king is doing this. The Mm. king has persuaded whatever Egyptians are around him that this is what has to happen. And that just happened so fast. Amy, that's so important. So fast. Yeah. All right. I've gotten my electric shock that it's been about 15 minutes of conversation, Bobby. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to raise up from this first section? No, I want, to, I want to see what happens next. You want to see what happens next. All righty. Then I'm going to pick up in verse 15 and just take us to the end of the chapter. The king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, saying, When you deliver the Hebrew women, look at the birth stool. If it is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, fearing God, did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing, letting the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous. Before the midwife can come to them, they have given birth. And God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and increased greatly. And because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Then Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every boy that is born you shall throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Hmm. Shifra and Pua, man. Yeah. Heroes Unsung of the heroes. Hebrew Bible. I know. Bible. Yeah. I know. I love, okay, well, I should say I love that there's some ambiguity, but maybe you would argue about whether there is ambiguity. Yeah. I have heard the idea that there, when it says that they are Hebrew midwives, that there's, you could think of that as they are the midwives to the Hebrew people. Yeah. Or they are themselves of the Hebrew people. Yeah. And are midwives. Yeah. I mean, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, it's interesting because in the Hebrew text, it's la mialdot ha'ivrit, which is a mm. demonstrative adjective, right? So it's the midwives, the Hebrew ones, 
Mm-hmm. So they're Hebrew midwives in the in the Hebrew text. In the in the Septuagint, they're reading le mialdot, uh, so it's not a def- definitive. So that one can either be the midwives of the Hebrews, or it could be the Hebrew midwives. So the Septuagint, the Greek translation, and actually Josephus, I think, reads these as Egyptian midwives to the Hebrews. Mm. The Hebrew text that we have has pointed it. The vowel pointing is the Hebrew, the midwives who are themselves Hebrews, mm-hmm. which is interesting because then it leaves open both of those possibilities. Yeah. So I'm just curious, like, what difference it makes to you, whether they, they themselves are Hebrew or whether they are Egyptian. I mean, I think I, what I first want to say is that in, in this story that has very quickly sort of devolved into there are two camps. Like, yeah. now we're playing identity politics and you are one or the other. I like that there is some ambiguity about what is the identity of these women and that the most important thing about them is actually not which proverbial camp they are. Oh, I like that a lot. Yeah. And I guess some of that is retained if they are, I don't know. It's really different once you read it one way or the other. Like once you say like, now I'm going to think of them as Egyptian and now I'm going to think of them as Hebrew. I like I that because that was that's kind of where I was pushing was if you read it this way, then, you know, so if you read them as Hebrew, then they're standing up for their people in a, in a very subtle but powerful way. Mm-hmm. If they're Egyptians and they're crossing the line and sort of protecting mm-hmm. the life of the people, even though they don't belong to that people. But I'm wanting to split it. I like that what you're saying about let's retain the ambiguity and say what they do is a, a little bit irrespective of their actual ethnic identity and like Mm -hmm. what they do that matters. I I really Mm -hmm. like that. I like that a lot. It's probably cheating a little bit, but I'll (laughs) (laughs) I'll hold on to it anyway. Okay. So the midwives let the boys live. Yeah. Right. They don't kill the boys. Yeah. But when Pharaoh asks them, (laughs) they don't exactly, they don't fess up that that's what they're doing. Right. Like, how do you read that? Like, is there any part of you that wishes they had, like, owned it and said, like, well, I don't. This is a family podcast, so I can't say what they would have said to Pharaoh. But, like, you know, like yeah. really said, like, something. Or would that just have been stupid? And this was, this was like, the practical way that they could move things along. Yeah, no, I love how – I love what they did here because – there are just times, and you see this throughout the biblical text in various ways, especially with women characters, that they don't have the access to sort of direct forms of power. If you imagine that they were like, we're not going to kill those babies, then what Pharaoh is going to do is say, mm-hmm. fine, then I'm going to kill mm-hmm. you, and I'm going to mm-hmm. put new midwives in charge and give them mm-hmm. the order, and they're going to obey it. Yeah. So everything has gone south if they say what they've done yeah and so what they do is they invoke this like weird like you don't understand and they're talking to the egyptian pharaoh right and they're like you don't understand women you don't understand hebrews you don't understand you don't understand birth yeah right there's this Mm -hmm. whole world that we understand because of who we are that you have no access to and we're just telling you it's there's, there's no way that this order can be carried out yeah now they have lied uh-huh. misrepresented at least, but they've done it in a way that it, the, Pharaoh can't now say, okay, I'll just replace you because that, yeah. they're not the problem. The problem is yeah. the situation. It's, it's really ingenious 
That is, it is really smart. And it makes me, again, think about the way that, that we push back against powers that seem wicked to us in our, in our current time. And that sort of struggle between like, when do you just step down and say, I'm not working with this person? And when do you stay? And to the best of your power, whatever your power is in the situation, try to turn things for good. I don't have an easy answer to that question, but yeah, it is kind of fun to watch Mm -hmm. how they watch, how they do it here. Because this text, I mean, the book of Exodus is going to end up with a very direct confrontation of power. And so that's where this ultimately is headed. And so that suggests that at some level that is necessary. But in preparation for that moment, people who are not able to do that can do this other thing. Uh, And that seems important. Right. Are you surprised when the text says that God established households for them? Like, are you surprised that they didn't have households? Or how does this, how does that sort of fill out for you the picture of yeah. Shifra and Pua? We get, we, we know like nothing about them. And nothing then we don't hear all. about them later. They just yeah. pop in here for a hot second. No, but we, we do know their names, which I think is really important. And so like, we can talk about them not just as midwives, but as Shifra and Pua. And yeah. We don't get a lot of names of women, especially sort of women who appear for six verses. Yeah, and then no kidding. Don't appear again, and mm-hmm. so the text is remembering them in a really important way. Mm-hmm. Now that line about establishing households—it comes a little bit out of the blue um, for me, because uh, I guess I don't really know what a midwife's life would have been like in mm-hmm. the ancient world. But it seems as though maybe the expectation is that they are in the business of assisting other people in birth, but not themselves of having families. Mm-hmm. And so because they protected other people's live, livelihoods, they are granted that themselves. Mm-hmm. It's kind of how I read it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm not sure what to do with that. What, how do you read that? I mean, I think what I, what I take from that is the possibility that that these were these were women living really on the margins of society. I mean, I don't know how young they were, but to have a household was to be uh, to to be part of mainstream society at that yeah. time. And so, yeah. if they weren't married and didn't have children of their own, they they were pretty marginal. Yeah, in their in their power, in you know, their this sort of connections to centralized power in, in the society they were in. And that just, I mean, underscores, again, what we've seen so many times in the biblical text, that it's often the folks who are on the margins of society who are willing to press a little bit, who have the, who have the courage, who are not the neighbors who are going to go along with whatever the king says, maybe because they feel they have less at stake. I don't know. Yeah. But they're not bought into those power structures. And then it's ironic that they— they get it sort of <laughs> in yeah. with those power structures as yeah, a reward. Yeah. Maybe they'll use it for good. But yeah. <laughs> the other thing that I had not really been paying attention to, but you sort of uh, evoked it for me, is that sometimes I think that God is not much paying attention in this part of the text. Mm. You know, because at the end of chapter two, the Israelites cry out under their labor, and then God's like, oh, I remember my covenant. And then yeah. here comes the Moses story. Yeah. But in fact, God is engaged here. It's just like mm-hmm. it's like God is paying attention to what the people in the story do and are like supporting the resistance of these women. 
mm-hmm. but God is not yet engaged in the sort of active overthrow the empire sort of way. Mm. I don't quite know what to do with that, but it's important, I think, to me that God is working in and paying attention to what is happening here, even though from the outside, it actually appears as though things are getting worse. Mm-hmm. God is actually involved in what in what's going on. Do you do anything with that? That is so interesting, Bobby, that, I mean, yeah, what what a great mystery when when God gets really involved and when yeah. God is is sort of not quite as involved as we might like. But I love I love this sort of as a continuation of the the human power to sort of activate God in different situations, to like really call God, call God's attention to something. At like in the in the outcry, as you mentioned earlier, but also here, I mean, who knows what God was thinking before this, but Shifra and Pua just do their thing. Yeah. And it says it's because they fear God, which is great, but there's no, uh, it's, it doesn't seem like they got any like instructions that that's what they were supposed right. to do. Like this right. just seemed clearly to them, like this is the right thing to do. Yeah. And it almost feels like God sort of saw that and was like strengthened in God's own resolve that like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is, yeah, this is the right thing to do. And if Shifra and Pua can do it, like, yeah, we can. I don't know. Yeah. I'm sure that's totally heretical in every religious <laughs> tradition, but yeah, there you go, there you go. Heretical but beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a it's an interesting dance between uh, human history and and God. The other thing that's happening here for me is you were talking earlier about the Pharaoh had to have have somebody carry out his orders. They had there had to be other people willing yes. to do this. At that moment, you know, creating, like putting taskmasters over them, that still sounded kind of official. Mm-hmm. Then we got this command of these two midwives to do this. And they, they in their own way, said no. Mm-hmm. By the time we get to the end of the text, it's all the people are now drawn in. Like every single mm-hmm. Egyptian is mm-hmm. supposed to be throwing babies in the river. And yeah. so, you know, if, if everybody refuses, then there, no babies are going to get thrown in the river but you have the sense that people are obeying the order because I don't know why you feel like you have to or because you think the Hebrews are disgusting or whatever that language was earlier. But at at the end of this section of the text, it's down to the level where it just seems like average Egyptian folk. Right. If you see your neighbor had a baby. Mm. I mean, what a... Yes, of course, this story is is about ultimately about the suffering of the the Hebrews, but like what a degradation of the people of Egypt. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like to somehow get your people to think that this is what they need to do and maybe to get people to actually do it. Like what a blow to their humanity. Yeah. Like what a, Mm. it's terrible. Mm -hmm. It's terrible. Hi everyone. It's Bobby here from the Bible Worm Podcast. Welcome to Season 5 of Bible Worm and the New Year of the Narrative Lectionary. To celebrate the start of the new season, for the month of September, we're making all our Patreon benefits available to subscribers at any level. You can join at the Bible Worm supporter level for just $4 a month to receive access to early episodes, weekly liturgies, and video Bible studies for the whole month of September. At the end of the month, if you want to continue receiving these benefits, you can subscribe at a higher level. If not, you can cancel anytime. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details on becoming part of Bible Worm's Patreon community. 
Thanks for listening. And now back to this week's episode. Mm-mm-mm, Bobby. Should we go on? Yes. So I'm picking up in chapter two. A certain man of the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw how beautiful he was, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a wicker basket for him and cocked it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child into it and placed it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. And his sister stationed herself at a distance to learn what would befall him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the Nile while her maidens walked along the Nile. She spied the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to fetch it. When she opened it, she saw that it was a child, a boy crying. She took pity on it and said, he must be a Hebrew child. Then the sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get you a Hebrew nurse to suckle the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter answered, yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse it for me and I will pay your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter who made him her son. She named him Moses, explaining, I drew him out of the water. Bobby, this is one of the texts we read just this summer, right? Mm -hmm. In our series about women in the Bible. Yeah, it was episode 448. We talked about it. I think we talked about this text for maybe half of that podcast, mm-hmm, so that, that's mm-hmm. out there. Yeah, and, and we were focused mostly on Miriam mm-hmm. in that conversation. I just, I feel like it hasn't quite struck me as much before as it did just now reading it, that all the actors are female in yes. this story. Yeah. It's such a contrast to the sort of world that is being painted for me in the beginning part of this story, where there's a king and the systems of oppression are sort of like kind of physical abuse that I at least imagine is being carried out by men. Mm -hmm. And they are, you know, they want to kill the male babies, presumably because they imagine that males are a greater threat. Like it's all about, it's, it's all about the world of there's, there's something happening in the world of men. Yes. That is certainly impacting everyone, but it seems like it's, it is coming out from the world of men. And then here, You have a mother who has a daughter, and you have Pharaoh's daughter, and Pharaoh's daughter has a slave girl, and there is baby Moses, but all of them are just sort of, it seems like, responding in the moment to the human who is in front Mm, of them and doing the best they can. Not There's not really much of a long-term, I mean, we could argue about what in here is sort of strategic and like trying to, you know make certain ends come. I'm sure there is some of that. But there's just so much like presence in the moment and empathy with the person before you and not thinking about big picture systems. Yeah. It's just here's a here's this baby. What are we going to what do we do with this one baby? This yeah. single human. I love that Amy. And you know, we were talking earlier about the midwives and whether or not they are Hebrew or whether they are Egyptian. Here we have women who are clearly Hebrew, mm-hmm. Moses' mother, Moses' sister. And we have women who are, who, at least one woman here who is clearly an Egyptian. Not only an Egyptian, but the daughter of the Pharaoh who has made this order. And she is very clearly 
crossing the Mm -hmm. boundary you were talking about earlier between others because she knows it's not that she's been somehow tricked into taking care of a Hebrew baby. She Mm -hmm. sees that baby, the one in front of her, as you were saying, and she says, this must be a Hebrew. And her next move is to figure out how to protect that child's life, even though she's going to have to go home to dinner tonight and talk to her dad Mm -hmm. who made the order about what she's done. I mean, maybe she didn't have to do it tonight. Maybe she can wait a few years (laughs) until the baby Mm. comes to live with them. But, you know, it's so interesting that Pharaoh has made this commandment to all the people and his own daughter is not going to do it because she has compassion for that one life in front of her. And that life is more important to her than the order that's been given, even though it's been given by her own father. Right. And she's not going to do it, but she's also not, if she thought this was an unjust, you know, policy, she could be, she could be arguing with her dad about it all day long. She could be (laughs) protesting. She could be doing whatever. And the text doesn't report any of that. It reports she is responding to this moment and this baby. And this is what happens. Yeah. It's almost like it's a whole separate conversation, mm-hmm. you know? You know, you, if you imagine around this text that there are other people actually carrying out this order, mm. then saving this one child when there are so many others who could be saved, not protesting apparently, seems like an inadequate response. And yet this one action turns out to yeah. change everything. Yeah. And so, you know, there's always this feeling that maybe we could be doing more and maybe we could be doing more. For sure. But, but this text seems to, I love the way you were saying it earlier, to respond to the life that is in front of you and respect that life as a human life and not sort of get overwhelmed by the yeah. magnitude. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, somewhere in the course of this conversation, I had always sort of, I guess, imagined that, like, Moses was a special baby. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that means. Like, but that, I mean, the text doesn't say he was chosen from birth, but. Yeah, no. that there, I, I guess I, maybe because it says, his mother says he was, be, I don't know. I just had this idea in my head that there was something inherently special about Moses. Yeah. And as we're talking now, I'm wondering how, I'm sort of trying on the idea that, you know, there's there's a capacity for that kind of, you know, quote-unquote specialness in every human. But look at the way that he was treated by these people in his yeah. life during his early days. And imagine, mm. I mean, let alone that he survived, but also, like, imagine how that, if you have a circle of people who will really just respond to you as you are the human in front mm-hmm. of me. Yeah. I'm not trying to make a point about anything. I'm mm-hmm. just looking at you. Mm-hmm. That does set you up for a different kind of life of presence in the world. It does. That's really beautiful. Bobby, I don't remember what we, the specifics of what we talked about related to Miriam. And I always intentionally, I don't listen to our old episodes because I don't want to, I don't know. I just want to see how they strike this time that we read them. But this time reading this story, the thing that I wondered about Miriam, I found myself sort of imagining the family dynamic where you know, it says that the, the parents have this baby and the baby is beautiful and it doesn't mention that they 
already have a daughter. I mean, I guess why? Right. It doesn't say who else is in the family. It says there's a woman and a man who are married and they have a baby. And I just get this sort of image of those three months when this mom is focused so fully on this baby who is beautiful and endangered and fragile and also just a newborn. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, <laughs> newborns are newborns. And what often comes up is jealousy in yes. siblings who are so kind of getting short shrift and how much the more so that would that would be true if if the mother was worried that this child wasn't going to survive, that the baby yeah. wasn't going to survive. Like, yeah, I just picture Miriam sort of like watching from the side as her mother is ignoring her and obsessed with this baby. And then the way that she acts, yeah, you know, once the mother puts the baby in the basket. And I think the question that came to my mind is like, does she act out of care for her brother or does she act out of care for her mother mm-hmm. who loves the baby? Mm-hmm. I just can't imagine how complicated that all would be. You have, you have younger kids than I do. Does this like bring up anything for you? Oh, it's like listening to you talk about it. We don't really know how old Miriam is right here, but my daughter is three and a half years older than my son. And I imagine this is something like that. And so thinking about like her, maybe, you know, maybe Miriam is five, which is how old my daughter is now. But just thinking about that and the dynamic that was occurring to me is, and I, I, I think this is often the case in families, is that my daughter is annoyed by my son when we're all just sort of at home together and he's like doing his thing, but she is super protective of him Mm. when we're out in the world. Mm -hmm. It's like once there's other people, then it's like, no, we're, we're family. Mm -hmm. And so she has always done that, watched out for him. So that's how I think of Miriam here is she's, she's protecting the family, which involves both protecting Mm -hmm. her mother, caring for her mother and also protecting and caring for her brother. Mm -hmm. I don't know in this text how much she had sort of plotted ahead what she was going to do, but her solution is genius. So we Mm -hmm. end up not only with the (laughs) baby being saved, but the baby is saved and is being nursed by his own mother who is getting paid to nurse him. Like it's, it's amazing what she pulls off when you think of her maybe being four or five or whatever she is. So I don't know. It's just like, to me, one of the messages here is the resourcefulness that, people, maybe especially women in this story, come by when family relationships are at stake. Uh, a lot a lot is possible that you could not have imagined was possible ahead of time. Yeah. The other thing that I, that I, th- I think I always think of when I read this story, it's hard for me even to imagine. I don't even like to try to imagine it, but I feel like we need to is, you know, it's really easy to read this story like, oh, the mother put the baby in the basket and the baby floated down the Nile and it's so sweet, you know? Yeah. And I just can't, I, I, it's hard to even fathom what it would take to put your newborn baby in a basket to float down the river, not to, for that to be the best option you yeah. can come up with. Like, yeah. and it, it reminds me of, Gosh, I don't, I don't remember the poem. I wish I had thought of it before a conversation, but there's a poem about the refugee experience that really just sort of draws this out. Like, in order for it to actually seem like your best and safest option is to walk through the river 
or to, you know, climb over razor wire or to trek through the jungle, you have to imagine what what the other thing was. Yeah. Like it's these are not things that are done lightly mm. ever. No. And if you I mean, yeah. It's a 3-month-old baby. I don't know. It's it's hard to even try on the desperation that that she must have felt in that moment, but it's it is profound. Now that's absolutely right, but you know that the imagery of people dying in rivers, refugees dying in rivers mm-hmm. because they have no better options is not distant from us, right? No, you, it is not. You see that on the news every day, and I have particular images in mind that are heartbreaking to me, but that stuff is happening all the time. And there's, you know, now there's barbed wire in the rivers and Mm -hmm. people are thinking about like, how do I get through the barbed wire so that my child can have a better life? Like that's the kind of thing that Moses' mother is thinking about is this is the, like, I would not do this if I had any other option. Right. But the only option that I have. And people are dealing with that every day. They're distant from me. But this story kind of brings them closer. Yeah. Yeah. I think it really does. The last thing I want to say about this section of text is previously the, the midwives protected the children because they feared God. Mm-hmm. Here you have Pharaoh's daughter, who is not said to be a God worshiper. Mm-hmm. She seems to be committed to her own culture and pre- presumably her own religion. And yet the story kind of celebrates her because she protected life. Mm-hmm. And so to me, this is an, in, like you, you were talking mm-hmm. earlier about the Hebrews and the Egyptians and blurring those boundaries. Who's being celebrated in this, in this story is not Hebrews exactly, but it's life protectors. And so Pharaoh, even though she is part of the, what, what would be considered mm-hmm. the enemy here mm-hmm. in this text, she protects life and therefore we celebrate her. So I just think that's important that the the central thing here is not whose God do you worship, but do you protect life? And if the answer is yes, I protect life, then then this story is going to celebrate you. That seems really important. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm really glad you, I'm really glad you raised this up. And I think it's, yeah. Who, how are you going to respond to this life in front of you? Mm Mm-hmm. So we pick up again, not until the beginning of chapter three, and even though it's only a half a half a chapter, I feel like we need a little bit of catch up for what we miss in between, because next time we find Moses, he's an adult and he has a father-in-law. Yeah. Baby Moses has lived for a time with his uh, birth family until he's weaned, and then he's gone back to live with Pharaoh's daughter and grown up in the house of Pharaoh's daughter. Then he has gone out as an adult and he has seen the Egyptians oppressing the Israelites. And so he kills an Egyptian Mm -hmm. and is found out by his own people that he's done that. And so his own people are afraid of him. And he's a little bit out on the outs with the Egyptian people because Mm -hmm. he has killed one of them. And so he's rejected seemingly by everybody. So he has fleed to Midian where he's gotten married and now he is shepherding the flocks of his father-in-law in the mountains of Midian. Mm-hmm. That's where the yeah. story picks up. Here we are. And I will say, I feel like this text alone could have been our whole text for the day. Oh, my but goodness, we're gonna, yes. we're gonna, <laughs> yeah. 
do the best we can. Yeah. So I'm picking up the beginning of chapter 3. Now Moses, tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, drove the flock into the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire out of a bush. He gazed, and there was a bush all aflame, yet the bush was not consumed. Moses said, I must turn aside to look at this marvelous sight. Why doesn't the bush burn up? When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. He answered, here I am. And he said, do not come closer. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you stand is holy ground. I am, he said, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord continued, I have marked well the plight of my people in Egypt and have heeded their outcry because of their taskmasters. Yes, I am mindful of their sufferings. I have come down to rescue them from the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the region of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. Moreover, I have seen how the Egyptians oppress them. Come, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh, and you shall free my people, the Israelites, from Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and free the Israelites from Egypt? And he said, I will be with you. That shall be your sign that it was I who sent you. And when you have freed the people from Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Moses said to God, When I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, Echyeh asher echyeh. He continued, Thus shall you say to the Israelites, Echyeh sent me to you. And God said further to Moses, Thus shall you speak to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This shall be my name forever, this my appellation for all eternity. I just find it, I love that they're moving from, I mean, I don't know how I picture that sort of environment that they're generally in, but I love that this starts with, Moses going into the wilderness. Mm. I just have this this sense of there's there's this word in the in the Jewish tradition hefker ownerless. Like you have uh. the, the wilderness is ownerless, yeah. and you have to be in that sort of state to really be able to uh, to encounter God. I and love that. And that's where Moses goes, but totally by accident. Moses is not looking for God. No, no, no. Moses is taking care of some sheep, and he's ended up. We're sort of in between places. I, I really like that. We're not in Egypt. We're not in the Promised Land. We're in Midian, which even the name Midian sort of sounds like it's midway between two other places where you mm-hmm. might be. And then we're not even in Midian. I mean, we are, but we're in the wilderness in Midian. It's like the in-betweeniest place you could imagine. Right. And that turns out to be where God is. Yeah. Bobby, what do I ask you about the burning bush? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I will tell you the way that it is that it is hitting me now, this time I'm reading it. I've been reading a lot about sort of different ideas of 
prayer and and verbs of verbs that describe prayer and the one that i've been sitting with a lot lately in hebrew is hit lahavut which is actually sort of like to burn like to mm. that when you when you are in a state of yeah. prayer you are you are the bush that is not being consumed uh, yeah but how i don't know how does this image strike you this time around Moses encountering a bush on fire that is not consumed. I mean, the way that it's striking me is like the, the way that this text often strikes me is that the idea that God does not simply call out to Moses, mm-hmm. but lights the bush on fire, waits to see if Moses notices. Yeah. And then when Moses does notice, then God says, Moses, Moses. Yeah. And so there is a, it's almost like a little test. Mm-hmm. Is Moses paying attention? Mm-hmm. Reading this text in light of what we've just been talking about in chapter two, one and two, that question of are you paying attention seems really urgent. Like the world is on fire, man. And are you are you noticing? Are you just so busy yeah. herding your sheep that you're going to walk by and not notice something like this? Yeah. And so that idea that Moses is someone who pays attention. Moses is someone who notices. That seems, that's how this is striking me today. God, God needs someone who recognizes when things are on fire yeah. uh, and can go and, and, and intervene. Now, I love that. And I love, um, you know, I know I've said this before, but like, I, I think about how long, it seems like what strikes Moses is not that the bush is on fire. Right. It's that the bush is on fire, but is not being consumed. Yeah. But you can't tell just glancing at a bush on fire whether it's being consumed. Right. Like he would have had to stop and look at it. Like actually take in yeah. the thing that is happening right in front of his face and and see the sort of wonder of it. And he does that. And that yeah. again sort of maybe marks him as a person that God can talk to. Yeah. And then when God does talk to him, this this like double call of his name, mm. Moses, Moses. Yeah. And Moses's response in Hebrew, hineni, mm-hmm. in English, my English translation, here I am. It reminds me of another story. Yeah. Does it remind you of another story? It reminds me of another story. <laughs> also, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> what does it remind you of? What does that bring up for you? Oh, it reminds me of the near sacrifice of Isaac when Abraham yeah. is about to sacrifice his son at God's command and the angel says, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham yeah. says, here I am. Yeah. And it's such a different story yeah. because Abraham already has this relationship with God. They've been talking, yeah. you know, and God has already called Abraham by name and Abraham has already said, he and, you know, like, it's just sort of right in the middle of this act. Moses, as far as we know, has not been talking to God. Yeah. But there is urgency here. Like, yeah. in the same way, Moses is not the one who is endangering the people, Israel. But the 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 descendants of Isaac really are, like, the knife is being held over their head. There is yeah. that level of urgency that feels behind this call to me. But Moses yeah. has no idea. I've never thought of this text this way before, but the way that we're talking about it right now is leading me to sort of think of this bush as a metaphor Mm. for what's happening to the people in Egypt. Like everything Mm. appears to be on fire. 
you could just look at that and say, ah, the world is on fire, the bush is on fire, and keep on about your business. Mm-hmm. But you're you're talking about how Moses pauses and looks and sees that, in fact, God is protecting that little bush. Mm. And we've just been talking about how God is at work in in Egypt, but in subtle ways. And so I don't quite know whether that all adds up or not, but, you know, the Israelite people are, like, the, that world is very much on fire, and yet they are not being consumed, and God is active there. And that is similar here with, with this bush. And so... The responding to the urgency that something is yet still possible can still be done seems, I don't know, it's just, it's hit me that way today. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that. Oh gosh, Bobby, there are so many things I want to talk about in this section. Yeah. <laughs> I have to be a little bit selective here, but okay. So, so one thing that really sort of hit me this time, and I'm not sure has ever particularly hit me this way before. I think it's because we just recently read the story of the Garden of Eden mm. and that particular portrayal of God. And th- this part in uh, verse eight, where God says, I have come down to rescue them from the Egyptians and bring them out to a land, to a good and spacious land. Yeah. Like I have that same sort of sense of God that we get in Genesis 2. Like God has come, like you you picture God like arriving, like yeah. in an almost embodied way, yeah. very present, very close, and is going to put them in a safe place. Yeah. They're in a place that is not safe. And yeah, I just feel like it's a, I don't know, it throws me back. Yeah. It throws me back to Eden. I love that, Amy. And it's interesting because that same, uh, imagery struck me this time, but differently, mm. which is to say that God says, I am coming to set them free. Now you go set them free, right? That made me laugh yeah. aloud. Mm-hmm. And so like, what is happening is that God has come to set the people free. What mm-hmm. it looks like from the outside is that Moses has come to set the people free. And that's just making me think about like, I mean, God is around in this text, right? In the pillar of fire and all of those kinds of things. But God's action in the world looks like people taking action in the world. Mm -hmm. And so even when God is most present, Mm -hmm. it appears to be the case that, like that requires people doing the thing they've been asked to do. God does not just sort of swoop the Israelites out. Yeah, it goes back to that, that the relationship between human history and yeah. And, you know, there's a, there's a book by M.L. Fackenheim that I loved so much in college called God's Presence in History. But it, yeah, it goes exactly to to that. What is the relationship between those two things? Oh, it just made me laugh out loud. I've come to save them. So now you're going to go you save them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Really? I was really struck because your translation leaves the divine name <laughs> untranslated. Yes. Yeah. Which I I mean, I love that. And just the sound of it. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that divine name and how you understand it? Yeah, this name is sort of, you know, I used to think it was almost like a joke. Like Moses is expecting a name like I'm Bob or like I'm, you know, (laughs) like your name. You used to say Jimmy, I feel like. Jimmy, I used to say, actually, yeah, because I have, yes, I had a teacher once suggest I should use that name for God. But God's answer to what God should be called, ehyeh, esher, ehyeh, I mean, it's something like, I 
will be what I will be. Maybe I am what I am. It has something to do with the verb to be. It's like beingness is isness presence. Like it's, it's very like if what Moses wanted in a name was like, I want to be able to pin you down and understand you by having a name to call you. Yeah. This is the, (laughs) the broadest and vaguest name. Yeah you could possibly give and yet also just feel so like so deeply true in the way that you know god is such a is the biggest mystery like what do what can we say beyond god yeah is no i love that and even when you read it in hebrew ehya sher ehya like i don't know what that would have sounded like to an ancient person but to me it sounds like a breath it sounds and like so a it breath captures that like you know, Ecclesiastes talks about like trying to capture the wind, you know, mm-hmm. and the point being, it's not possible to confine the wind. And so when you hear that breath, you get that sense of not confinable. It is big and flowing and, and not possible to pin down. Yeah. Deeply frustrating for somebody who wants to be able to stick God in a box, right? Yeah. Yeah. There is no, there's no box here. And you're right. Even just the sounds in the name of God are just these like fluid breath. Like there are no, there are no hard sounds or no hard stops. Like it's just, it just flows right through your body. Yeah. But then God does give names and it's the names of the ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So it's like, I am this ephemeral God who has acted very concretely in the story that you know. Yes. So go back and think about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that's who I am. So there is a there is a concreteness, but it's about God's past action in the tradition. And that yeah. seems really important too. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And that's how that's how the people will know who you are. Yeah. You know, like this yeah, that the people know God by God's actions in history. Yeah. And God's like, I know it's not name dropping, but it's sort of named, you know, like, yeah. I'm not going to drop my own name. I'm going to drop right. the name of your ancestors. Right. And sort of just like, uh, you know, we said there's a, when there's a, a, a new king arises who doesn't know Joseph, everything falls apart. Yeah. God is, you know, as far as we know, the people in Israelite, ha- in, in, sorry, the Israelites who are in Egypt have not been in constant relationship with God during this time. I mean, maybe they have, but the text doesn't say so. Right. And so this really is sort of like a reintroduction. Yeah. Which is a sensitive moment. Yeah. And and so God tries to anchor this moment in in the shared past that they that they have. So they can mm-hmm. still call upon those relationships even though those people aren't around anymore. Mm-hmm. We are shockingly already arriving at the time that we're supposed to stop talking about <laughs> yeah. about the details of this text. And and we've said it a thousand times, but there is just so much more we could say. And yet we live in the finitude of time. And so is there any any last thing you feel like we need to talk about for this section? Or are you ready to start moving towards a close? I mean, on that point, I feel like one of the beautiful things about scripture is it is always more than can be said. No matter how much time you give it, it is always more than that. And that's part of the richness of our tradition. And so in any given moment, you can only, you can only say so much about scripture and, and just recognize that it always overflows. Yeah, there's a there's a, a beautiful prayer that is said often when a course of study is finished in the Jewish tradition. 
but the, the catchphrase is Hadran Alach, which is, I will return to you. I'll mm. return to you. We're not done with you. I love that. But we're done with you for now. (laughs) (laughs) My own thoughts are swarming because there are just a thousand directions that a person could go with the scripture today. But if you, if you close your eyes and center yourself, Bobby, what is, what is rising to the top for you? I mean, I've kind of been working it out in my own head this whole time. And how does all this hold together? And to me, where this text, like this whole text comes out is first of all, are you paying attention? That's happening in the burning yeah. bush. That's happening in Egypt. Are you paying attention to what is happening? And this story that we've been talking about, like people being thrown into the river and leaders suddenly turning on a dime and calling other people disgusting and all of those things, it's distant in this text, but also very much present among us here and now. And so the question of, are you paying attention? asked here of Moses, is very much alive for us too. The other thing that's arising out of this text is what distinguishes the people celebrated in this text from the people who are uh, feared or dismissed in this text is their orientation to life and death. And so the people that are celebrated in this text are the people who protect life. It doesn't matter so much why they protect life, who they are ethnically, who they are religiously. It's mm-hmm. that they are on the side of life over and against the powers that seek death. And so if you take those two things together, are you paying attention to the world around you? And are you on the side of life? Like that can, I mean, that can carry you for a lifetime, yeah. I think, of being a faithful person in the world and, and in the world of this text. So that's where, that's where I've come out. Yeah, I love that. I love that. How about you? I don't know that I come out in a super different place, but I think, you know, I, (laughs) as we get older, we learn things about ourselves. And one of the things I'm learning is, while I, I wish very much that I was oriented more towards advocacy and driving change that I think Mm. is important in the world, that is just, it is kind of not, how I'm wired. And so mm-hmm. I struggle often with feeling like I, I should be doing a lot more than I'm doing. And I, abs- I should, I'm not saying I shouldn't be doing more than I'm doing. And also letting that thought become so overwhelming that you yeah. just are paralyzed and don't act in any way yeah. um, is a real uh, concern for me. Yeah. <laughs> I become easily overwhelmed. And so having these stories where the task at hand is to pay attention to the person who is right in front of you yes. and do not increase their suffering yes. and help them if you can Yes, is actually a pretty serious charge and sometimes yeah. hard and sometimes dangerous, but much more clear and much more real than sometimes the, the bigger picture stuff that I don't know how to respond yeah and I get all tied up in my head about. So if what I can do is that, I I should do it. And when I feel that the bigger picture stuff is pulling me away from being the kind of person who can do that, then I need to check myself. Yeah. A little bit. That's so important, Amy. 
I mean, Moses is thought of as the liberator of the Israelites, right? When you think about the Exodus, that's who you think about. But there is no Moses if there is not also a Shifra and a Pua, and if there's not also a mother who thought to put a baby in a basket or a sister who thought to stand on the side of the bank or a Pharaoh's daughter who was moved by compassion for the child she saw. And so the story needs all of those people. And so knowing who you are and what you can pay attention to and what your role might be. And just, I mean, the very basic, like we don't know why Miriam did what she did, right? but she did it. We know that Pharaoh's daughter was moved by compassion, but did she have any sort of strategy? It doesn't seem like it, but those things are not only enough, those things are urgently important. They're urgently important. And And for all of the policy stuff that we legitimately have to figure out, that stuff can't be forgotten. Exactly. All righty. Well, next week, Bobby, we move into the book of Deuteronomy, some sections from chapter 5 and 6. We'll get the the Shema in there, which is nice. Here, O Israel, the Lord is one. And the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments. I actually thought the Ten Commandments was this week, and I was happy to see that it wasn't this week yet. <laughs> yeah, we do the Ten Commandments every once in a while. I don't. We seem like we've done them a whole bunch of times. I don't it's know. a surprisingly challenging text, I think. It is, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we'll see what we can come up with this year. Yes. All right, well, I'm looking forward to that conversation. Me too. Thanks for a great conversation. It's on to regular worm for me. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Say hi to regular worm for me. I will, I will. We'll be back with Bible worm next week. I'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced and edited by Bobby Williamson. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many thanks to all our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. Special thank you to our newest supporters, Ruth Chadwick-Moore, Chelsea Benham, Wallace Landrum, Catherine Beckett, Bonnie Davis, Lori Wonder, Don Rank-Hauer, Lisa Page, Tanya Waker, Jennifer Boyd, Melissa Atchison, David Figliuzzi, Ben Squires, Dustin Hader, Kristen Jackson, Lynn Ogren, Pastor Chip, Jeanette Lisk, LaDonna, Robin Robinson, Jessica Comeret, and Melissa Marquis. Next week, we read from Deuteronomy chapters 5 and 6, Moses' account of the Ten Commandments, and one of the central pieces of Jewish liturgy, the Shema. Until then, keep on digging.